0: You're listening to RiverCast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hey, if you've ever had to reboot your computer or restart electronics, sometimes you call, you know, tech support. You know, don't be the person that, you know, my understanding was that somebody called, uh, you know, tech support, and they said, uh, you know, plug it in, and they're like, oh, I didn't realize, like, my computer wasn't even plugged in, or like, well, I can't see what I'm doing. The power's out. Like, seriously? You know, nothing works when the power's out. But if you've ever done anything with electronics, somewhere along the way, you have to reset. You have to hit a reboot. There's something that they do, and I don't, I'm not a technician or any electronics or electrical engineer. I don't understand all of that. But there's something that is the programming and the coding that's into is when you plug the thing in and you turn it on that it's supposed to do certain things. It's somewhere along the way it messes up. If you've used a computer, how many of you are familiar with the, the, the old school three-finger salute, Control-Alt-Delete on a computer back in the day, right? If you're a little bit younger you're kind of like what? Well, I don't know what that is. But back in the day, I don't know if you know when that came out or when it was kind of from the very beginning in the 70s and 80s when computers were like big mainframes and you know the PCs were still far in the distant future, they were buggy. They had problems and so they'd have to restart all the time and the folks realized like this is getting old. We gotta unplug the thing or turn it off and turn it on and it's taking a long time, you know, just forever. And so they built into the programming. If you hit Control Alt, initially it was Control Alt Escape, But somebody's like, yeah, that's too close. You could set a book down on a keyboard and then reboot your computer. So they made Control, Alt, and Delete where you had to use two hands, unless I guess you got gorilla fingers and can kind of reach across the whole thing, to do a reboot of the system. There are two times in the Bible when God hits the reboot, He hits the reset button on his creation. One we're looking at today with the story of Noah and the ark, and the other one is told to us in detail in the book of Revelation. It is yet to come. And the story of Noah's and the ark is really a kind of a forerunner. It's kind of a foreshadowing of of things to come. We get a really clear picture of who we are as people, who God is in heaven and what he is going to be doing in the future. And it's something that we need to pay attention to. In fact, it's a, it's a kind of a point back to thing. Peter, I believe it was later on, he said, uh, you know, that just like in the days of Noah, actually Jesus said this, that people were eating and drinking and they were marrying and giving a marriage. And then that day came when the rain fell and the world flooded and people were clueless and oblivious to it. He said, just like that is going to be when the Son of Man returns. So read with me, if you would, the story of of Noah. We're not going to read all three chapters of it. The Bible gives us much more detail here than so far the other events that happened, but we're going to talk about these events, these historical events. So read with me in Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 9 and following. The Bible says this, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You know, I don't know what's going to be put on my tombstone, if I'll have a tombstone, or what's going to be said in the the ending, but there's not much better you could put and say about anybody after they pass that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence and god saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for <coughs> excuse me <coughs> for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and god said to noah i have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold i will destroy them with the earth Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. We don't really know what kind of wood that is, oak or cherry, who knows. Um, but anyway, make a, make a boat out of wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. And he goes on and describes how long the ark was about like 500 feet long or so. And then he jumps down into verse 17. It says this, for behold... He's like, look, pay attention to this. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then he goes on, he continues about bringing two of, of every animal, male and female and and those that are clean to bring like seven pairs of that and continues on from there where I want to talk to you first off about the Kind of the science and history of the ark, you know, creation out of nothing is a whole big debate. Debate, kind of the whole another big thing in the science and religion kind of debate that's out there is is Noah's Ark. Like, did that really happen? Did it not? Were these fictitious stories? Are these are these kind of Doctor Seuss stories? Are these kind of you know fairy tales? Mary had a little lamb, you know, just nice little. Cute stories that you'd read your childhood. Well, I'm not sure Noah's Ark is a, a cute little story, you know. Animals are always nice, but kind of the end result, not so nice for everybody else. But And then we want to talk about kind of the significant implications. And I hope this morning that you walk away with a profound sense of who God is, who we are, of what His salvation is in our life. Because already with just a few chapters in the book of Genesis, we're getting a very clear picture of how this world works. And so one of the people who, um, who doubt the Bible or just kind of very much don't think that it's history kind of point to people who believe in the Bible and who say, wait a minute, I believe in God that made heavens and earth. I believe that these are not just stories that are in the Bible that are just, you know, little uh, uh, stories that are kind of made up that we kind of derive truth out of. There are a lot of people who go to church that thinks the Bible is just full of stories that these aren't necessarily real people that they just somebody was creative and kind of writing fictional characters that just you know you can kind of look back and get some inspiration and truth out of them and but truth be known Jesus treated these as true people, as real people, as real stories. In fact, all of the New Testament does. And so I personally think we're kind of foolish to not look at them that way. And so I, as I shared with you a few weeks ago when we talked about like creation, just kind of hang with me. I'm going to do a little bit of science this morning, all right? So some of you in the room are like, yay, I like this. And like last time, others were like, oh, really? Are we going to do that? Can't we just talk about the other stuff? So did Noah really exist? and Did the ark happen? So, if you look, to, if you turn to Wikipedia, you can Google it on your phone now, it's okay if you do that, or you can look at it at home. But if you put in there, um, what was it, it uh, uh, flood geology, you'll get to an article. Go to the screen that has the, the first um Wikipedia article, yeah, this one right there. So, I don't, I'm not gonna take time to copy the whole article, but I want you to notice kind of what's in yellow. So, after talking about scientific analysis has refuted the key tenets of flood geology, that's the first sentence. At the end, it comes down and says, in contrast, flood geology does not adhere to the scientific method, making it pseudo science. So I don't want us to debate so much as a church, like, did it, you know, how, and all of this and all of that. Like, there's, there's overlap in a lot of things here. But what I do want our young adults, especially in the room, because you're on the front end of figuring out what is true and what you're going to believe and your friends and all of that. Don't let statements like this, you know, make you feel bullied. I mean, they're they're actually the second sentence in this whole statement is kind of like academic bullying, to be honest with you. Flood geology contradicts the scientific consensus In other words, everybody else in the world thinks that you're dumb, you know. Everybody else in the world thinks you're not wearing the right kind of sneakers today. Everybody else in the world thinks you're not listening to the right kind of music. Everybody else in the world thinks that you don't have a brain. I want us to recognize that people who believe the flood actually happened are looking at the same data that people who don't believe that it happened, and they're following just as much science as everybody else despite what others say. And there is a tremendous amount of subjectivity that's put out there that in, the, in the name of science. We'll talk a little bit about that more in a, in a minute, but go to the next slide. I want you to kind of get a picture here. Here's what the world is trying to create for us. They want us to be people that hold to science and history, but have it completely separate from our religious beliefs. They want a, they kind of decouple those things together. So I'm not going to get really deep philosophically. Sean, you're making my head hurt. Some of you are like, no, this is good. I wish you'd go more. Others, you're like, Sean, I'm still on my first cup of coffee. Go easy. So hang with me. This is a way many people who believe the Bible is stories or who don't believe the Bible whatsoever, like religion is just something that's over there that people do because it makes them feel good and it makes them kind of better for society. But it's not in touch With science and it's not really in touch with the historical world. The next slide is the one that we should be following and that we should feel in reality is we should love science. We should love history. We should love all of those together. Sometimes Christians can get a little like, well, I believe the Bible and I'm not going to do science. Well, that's not very smart. You know, you can't go to the doctor. If you're going to hold that, like, I like science. I like a lot of those, you know, things that it comes out with. But we need to integrate all of those together. So think about it this way. The Bible is not first and foremost a science book. That's why publishers have science books that students study them in school and all the way through college and whatever. But the Bible is a book that does have some science in it. The Bible is not first and foremost a history book. It's not trying to outline the history of the world, but it has a lot of history that is in it. And so all of these three things for us as followers of Jesus, we come together and say, wait a minute, we can have believe in all of tremendous things of science and follow the scientific method. We can understand history and we can believe the Bible and all of those things are not mutually exclusive. They all go together. So what's the science of the flood? So think with me, the flood, of the Bible, God said to Noah, hey, I'm going to flood the whole world. I'm not going to send a little local flood. I'm going to flood where every mountain is covered with water. This whole globe at some point is going to be like a bathtub that is just completely filled with water. And consequently, the only ones that are going to be saved are the ones that are on this boat that you're going to build. took them about 50 plus years to build that thing. Can you imagine every day? So what are you going to do today, honey? Well, I got to go out and build the boat. I got to go out and build this thing, you know. And, uh, and the animals that were saved, but everything else died. So if all of a sudden all the world was filled with water, and we go around looking for fossils, wouldn't we expect to find fossils and things like fish in places where they normally weren't? And then lo and behold, you go and look and on the mountains, and the mountains and the land all over this world have fish fossils all over them and some pretty amazing kind of fossils that are along the way. And it's not just one little area, it's the entire globe. And so part of the evidence is we think about, you know, did the flood really happen? When you look at the scientific data, everybody, people that believe the Bible and people that doubt the Bible look at it and say, like, yep, there's fossils here. Yep, there's fossils there. Like go to the, go to the next slide, I believe, that where it has the rock. So this is a fossil of a jellyfish, all right? There is, There are thousands upon thousands of fossils that are not dinosaurs. We like all the big ones, you know, Jurassic Park with big teeth and that kind of thing. But there are far more fossils that are just innocuous little jellyfish all over the world. And so one of the evidences, when I look and think about did the flood really happen, I'm, I look around and... You know, I read, and yeah, these fossils are everywhere. They're in Asia, and they're in China, and they're in Australia, and they're in the U.S., and they're in Europe. They're all, they're all over Africa, digging them everywhere. That speaks to a global kind of thing that's been going on. Second reason why the flood, to me, fits reality in the past in science is have you ever walked along the beach and found a jellyfish? Anybody ever seen a jellyfish or something like on the beach? What kind of shape does it... Is it in? How, what kind of condition is it in? Not very good, right? Like Usually you can find seashells that you know been there they can lay a long time and not a lot happens to them, but jellyfish pretty fast in the hot sun are like they're you know that soft material is decaying a lot. These jellyfish fossils they didn't form over millions of years because the jellyfishes would have rotted They would have been dead and gone in six months, like gone. Something happened really fast. And the details in these things are just unbelievable. So it's not just the quantity of fossils, it's the quality of the fossils. Go to the next slide. Look at this next one, this shrimp. Look at the little details, little hair-like things on the legs and everything. Phenomenal. Like this thing looks like it was freeze-dried, you know, and just here it is in a hard case rock. That speaks to something that didn't just happen slowly, like the, 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 you know, the, the two things are, the flood, if you believe the flood really happened and filled the earth, is that all the sediment settled and it was a cataclysmic, kind of rapid, fast-acting kind of thing. And then the other option is, is that, no, these layers happened over millions and millions and millions and millions of years where layer after layer after layer after layer was laid on the, on the animals. And at the end of the day, both camps are looking at the same data and both are using, doing the exact same thing. They're looking at the science data and they're making interpretations, making subjective decisions about what happened. And so it's really kind of, it's not just bad, it's actually irresponsible to say one side is pseudoscience and not the other. So don't be bullied in that. The fossil quality is so good that they can look at, in many fossils, they're actually studying like how the eye is formed. I mean, these things happen really fast. If you've ever seen a fish dead, like you go fishing that somebody threw, you know, on the side of the rocks, I mean, the eyes dry right out and they're gone. You can't study anything. They're just flattened out like they're next to nothing. So there's tremendous amount in the world just of evidence of what the Bible says really happened, that there really was a global flood. So you know locally or another way to look at it also is this sediment s- stuff that's going on. You see these sediment layers, that are not over little areas, they're over entire continents or the whole area. Like you can find the same kind of sediment, that's just all over the place. And then when you look at the layers of sediment, whenever you get kind of sediment layers laying in on top of each other, erosion always happens because that soil's loose, right? I live out in farm country, so maybe some of you live in the urban jungle and aren't in tune with the dirt and the birds and the bees and the trees and whatever, but whenever soil gets disturbed and there's layers upon it, there's always erosion. The first heavy rain cuts ruts in it and everything. These layers of sediment around the world don't have evidence of erosion because there wasn't lots of time where that soil was just kind of laying there and channels were being cut. They're just nice and even. Something that happened very quickly and something that happened very fast. So science, in my mind, completely overlaps very well realistically with what we see in the Bible. History does too. So go ahead to the picture of Noah's Ark. So kind of shifting, thinking about the history. This is one interpretation of what the Ark might have looked like. Who knows if it was exactly like that? That's the ark encounter um, that you can go visit and see. But I wanted you to see the size of this thing. In the past, people have said, well, the ark couldn't have possibly saved all of those animals. That sounds so far-fetched and so crazy. Well, I want you to see a kind of a magnitude. Look at the people and compare them. See the person way to the right on the side of the ark? This thing was like almost five, either just under or just over. 500 feet long, 100 feet wide, just under 100 feet wide, three three floors, three stories, we would say high. Could house like 125 sheep sized animals. There are only so many big animals in the world. There really are not that many kinds of giraffes floating around, there's not really really many, that many elephants and hippopotamuses and rhinos. Tyrannosauruses, yeah, I kind of think the reptiles, the dinosaurs are on the ark as well. There's just not that many big things. And so, so I, when you read the story of Noah's Ark, there's so many questions, like, what did they do for lighting? What did they do for, I'm sure they had oil lamps, how did they get rid of all that waste and all that? And how? So you kind of get to, the, like, how is this even possible? Is this history really real? And it was interesting, when Cyclopedia Britannica was first created, like in 1771, pre, just before the Revolutionary War, right? Or right, or right in that time frame. Encyclopedia Britannica treated Noah's Ark as a factual event in history, and it argued that all of the animals could have fit in the ark just fine. Fast forward by the time of the Civil War, they began saying, eh, maybe they wouldn't have all fit. Yeah, there's no way this whole world would have flooded. It was probably more of a local flood, you know, just it was a lot of water, like maybe you know, maybe the Mississippi overflowed its bank and kind of, somebody wrote the Bible and exaggerated. And, and all of that same time period is when, when academics began studying more and more and not so much learning, but they began doubting more and more like the, the truth, the veracity of the Bible and all those things collided to kind of, you know, along with that origin species and kind of hand us to where we, we are today. And so historically, What's so interesting, you can go to the next slide, and these will be the last photo, pictures, whatever that I'm doing. Here's a quote from a guy by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian that was alive over 2,000 years ago. So think time of Jesus. He was alive when Jesus was here. I want you to notice a statement. This is a quote from his history. It's called Antiquities all writers of barbarian, don't look down on that, he just meant people that were not Greek, that was kind of what their world saw as barbarians, but all writers of barbarian histories make mention of this flood and of this ark, and he goes on to mention a bunch. Do you know, thinking about history, that the history of the ark is recorded in hundreds of writings from cultures all over the world, in fact, so many Native American tribes have it. You can read them like Apaches and other groups, and even in the U.S. that will talk about a great canoe that carried eight people and landed on a mountain. And they'll even talk about things about them sending out a raven and then sending out a pigeon and coming back, you know, two times. Like these like really clear details. And this is all over the globe. Now, People who doubt the Bible will say, Oh, that just must be the missionaries. The missionaries got there and told them that story, and that was the way they reinterpreted it. Folks, this was 2,000 years ago that he was saying this, and we still see it today. So when you look at the geological evidence, there's some really re- good reasons to think the flood happened. You look at history, there's some history outside the Bible that's global all over that makes sense to me that happened. And then I turn to the Bible, and I'm like, I. Believe this book. I don't believe it because of the things I just said. I believe the book because I really believe that the God of heaven spoke it. And if it really is true, then I ought to find evidence. And when I look around the world, I'm like, yep, it syncs with the rest of the world. So science study, history study done. Now we'll go look at the Bible. I want our young adults in the room to say, you can believe in Noah's Ark and be and love science. It's okay. You can love the Bible and you can believe these things and you can love history. It's okay. It's good. Three things I want you to notice quickly this morning, and I'm going to go quickly because I spent a lot of time talking about those things for you. I want you to notice that this event, these are his, this is a historical event. This is not a make-believe thing. This event tells us a lot about who we are as people. Look what the Bible says in, in chapter 5, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is not a pretty picture of the world. Look what verse 11 says. It says that the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. And here's why. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Adam and Eve took God's world that was beautiful and amazing, that he made it perfect without sin, introduced corruption and disobedience to God, and by the time that Noah had come, it had exploded. Just last week, as we saw that Cain ends up killing his brother Abel, the first event we see recorded, you know, brother, killing brother. And now, we, two chapters later, we see that the whole world has just exploded in this corruption. This tells us, guys, who we really are at our core. That Noah was a man who was righteous and blameless, and he walked with God, and that he was unique. The rest of the world, that every intention, every purpose, every plan, every thought, every motivation of their heart was only evil constantly, continuously, ongoing. The world by that time had ripened. It had become as evil as it could possibly be. Government hadn't stepped in. In fact, what we learn and realize when we start looking at this, the job of government is to protect people from other people. It's to protect, it's to protect people. It's to Protect the vulnerable. Protect the innocent. Bring order into to a culture, into a community, into a neighborhood, into a, a country, if you will. And because left to our own devices, we're going to all, and without God, we're going to turn on each other because inside all of our hearts is something that is corrupt and it is evil. What that means for us as moms and dads is, is that our children need our care and our nurture and our love and our protection from all the jerks in the world and all the ones that would do harm. But it also means that our te- our kids need protection from themselves. That inside of them is all of this junk and all of this evil, and that we our job as parents is to. Help them to know the God of heaven so that he can change their life and transform them. They don't come into this world innocent and pure like we kind of think they are. They come into this world tainted already, having our own sin nature passed down to them. And so as, this, as God looked at this world, he says, this whole world is a mess. As, you, as I've shared multiple times, I have four cats and a dog at home. Sean, why do you have that? It is a long story, and I will not bore you with it, but just be honest with you, I really don't want that many. Like, Sean, yeah, we've heard you say that before, we don't buy it. Some of you are probably there too. I really don't. I don't. But I would really, I would absolutely do something about it. If I came home, and there's like blood in the, you know, kitchen, and like there was knockdown drag out, and the cats were at it, and the dogs at it, and they're just, like... I want to come home to peace. You know what I mean? Like, can you guys just all get along? God's up in heaven, made this world, and he's looking at this world. Crime is at an all-time high. Abuse is at an all-time high. Corruption's at an all-time high. Extortion, bribery, everything is off the chart. Just people are after their own good. Domestic violence is unbelievable. Rape and murder and stealing is off the chart. Mental health is in the toilet because our feelings come ultimately from our thoughts. And if our thoughts are only toward evil continuously, guess what? Our feelings are a mess. This, this world was a total disaster. People were victimized and struggling and hurting because of other things in the past and they were feeling unfulfilled. This world was not at all what God designed. It was not about good in life. It was destruction. And God said, this is terrible. This is not what I created. This is not what I want. I'm going to hit the reset button. And so he said, Noah, it's time for you to build a boat. And God's really patient. It took him at least 50 years to build this thing. I mean, the craftsmanship, I'm assuming, would have been just extraordinarily exquisite I mean, those joints would have had to have been tight. Yes, he he tarred it, you know, with whatever pitch and sap that they he got and created it out of those trees and all of that. Uh, wouldn't even be surprised? Along the way, God's like, yeah, he kind of missed a spot there. I'm gonna have to kind of put my hand on a little hole there, make sure this thing doesn't sink. But regardless, God said, Noah, I'm gonna flood this world. And I'm starting over because this world is an absolute mess. That means for you and me, we need to be sober about what's inside of our hearts because we're no different guys. That's the world that we're brought into. That's the world that we need saving from, and we need saving from ourselves. Now, the reason that Noah was saved, the Bible is very clear when it said that, that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. He wasn't... He was... Righteous and blameless because he walked with God. He didn't walk with God because he was righteous and blameless. This is really significant for you to understand this. So often people think, well, I'm going to get my life cleaned up so I can get close to God and I can know God. It's not the way it works. You and I can't clean our life up. Our heart is already corrupted and evil. The reality is, is that we come to God with all of our mess, And now we know the rest of the story that Noah didn't have the full story then. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But we go to God and say, God, I need Jesus to forgive me because I'm the one that's told the lies. I'm the one with the evil thoughts. I'm the one that has hatred in my heart. I'm the one that has selfishness. And I'm the one that has all of that junk. And we trust his son, Jesus, who paid the price for our sin on the cross. And he forgives us. And we have the chance, we've been at that point, to begin to follow him. And when you follow Jesus, and you follow him really closely, then you walk with God too. And as we experience that salvation, God turns around and he says, now you are righteous, and now you're blameless. I forgive your sins. And he changes, and as we follow him, he changes our life. You see... The righteousness and blamelessness always comes when we know and follow Jesus. That's the way that it works. And because of that relationship that Noah had with God and he was unique in the world, I know there's times when you feel like I'm the only Christian where I work. I'm the only one of my, you know, my whole school. I don't hardly know anybody that knows Jesus and is trying to live a life that honors God. You may feel that way, but you're not. Noah and his family really were. They were the only ones on the whole planet that everybody looked at was odd and weird and thought that they were just, what is your problem? How come you're not doing like the rest of us? Can you imagine trying to navigate that and doing business with your neighbors when they're always trying to take advantage of you 100% of the time and laws were not established well? And God said, enough of that. I'm hitting the reset button. So he sent a flood that wiped out the whole world except for those eight people. This story tells us a lot about who God is. It tells us not just about how sinful people are, but God's not the kind of God in heaven that just shrugs his shoulders and says, well, I guess they didn't do that well. Look, look what this tells us about God. Let's listen to this. In verse 6 of chapter 5, it says this, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor because he was that man who walked with God and was righteous and blameless. God, this story tells us about how sinful people are, but it also tells us about the holiness of God. And the justice of God, that he will not overlook the things that we do. It tells us that he notices. He gets a picture that he's looking at everything in the world. He's not speaking in hyperbole. He's not inflating. He's not puffing. He's not saying, oh, yeah, everything's bad. You and I will do that. We we do that with sports teams, right? Oh, they're terrible this year. Well, no, they're just not quite as good as somebody else. But God's looking. He's like, no everything they're thinking. He sees our thoughts. He knows the motivations and the intentions inside our soul. And he casts judgment upon us and says, I see that. I know that. And it's wrong. And it's evil. It's corrupt. It's not what I put into this world. It's not the world that I created. And so we see the holiness of God who didn't just create this world, and he made this world innocent and put us in this world innocently, but just as we saw, I read a minute ago, that the world was corrupt because people had corrupted themselves. They had figured this out and gone down that world. You know, I'll give you an example. Like, technology in and of itself is not bad, but all technology will always eventually be used for bad. Everything that we do will be used for bad. Because we bring that into the equation and everything in our life, there's not a tool and instrument on this planet that won't be used for bad and for evil. And somehow in our culture, we even think, Oh, get rid of that one thing. Cause then that's going to save the world. That's going to change everything. No, it's the people that are messed up. It's the people that are broken. And so God as a holy God says in heaven, I'm going to judge this world and I'm going to start over again and it grieved God's heart, and he regretted. Well, Sean, did he, did he make a mistake? Did we see that God made a mistake? No. When you and I have regrets, when we say, oops, I messed up, it's because we did mess up. What the Bible is saying is that I made this world good, and they've messed it up, and I, it is grieving me because of what they're doing wrong. I'm sad at that. I regret what they're doing. God didn't regret what he did in making them. He regrets what they did. Mom and dad, have you ever regretted something that your child did, your adult child or your teen did, and you knew it wasn't your fault, but you felt regret? That's what this is. That's what this word is. It's you're like, I wish that would not have happened. (laughs) That should not have happened. But it's not on you. God didn't do anything wrong. The big message for you and for me is, is when we sin, it grieves the heart of God. It's not that God is coming down like vindictive and vengeful and, you know, just getting us when He punishes and He corrects us. It actually grieves His heart. It hurts His heart, if you will. When He sees all of the thoughts and the Plannings and the schemings and the things that are in our soul that are against him, and so God is a God who does not play, and He even though at the end of the story He saves Noah and the flood was about a year on that ark, and there is plenty of room in there as I said earlier for the animals and the food and all of that, and they finally come out of the ark, and the buttons reset, and they see a rainbow. I don't I don't necessarily think that this was the first time it ever rained on the earth. You know, that's where science and all of that is like, yeah, we're all trying to figure that out. I'm not even sure that it was the first time they ever even saw a rainbow. Maybe you've thought that and taught that, I don't know. There's just, there's a lot that the Bible doesn't tell us. And I'm careful to not go beyond what it doesn't say. Because I quickly run past my experience and expertise on all matters after that. But God said, see this rainbow? That's a reminder that I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to destroy this earth again by water. He didn't say he wouldn't destroy it. He said, I'll never do it by water. And so the third thing that I want you to recognize is is that this, this event reminds us of God's covenant of grace. That God made a covenant with Noah. He said, Noah, I am making a promise the youth, as we talked last Sunday night, talked about covenant. It was one of our teens said, a covenant's a promise. I said, you're absolutely right. It's a promise that involves a commitment, an agreement between two entities. And God made an agreement. Noah's part of it was like, okay, thank you, sir. God's part of the agreement was, I'm not going to do this again. And he said, I'm never going to. Flood the whole world and destroy the world again. Can you imagine the next time it rained, Noah and his family would be like head to the ark? Like, you never know. We better go back there, you know, if this is gonna happen again. And so the first thing that they do when they get out of the ark is they sacrifice all of these animals. Look at chapter chapter eight. Well, I don't I won't read it to you, but he he sacrificed all of these animals. And, and the populations were low. He took of the animals that had seven clean animals, and he took and made sacrifices to God in heaven. There's something significant that you need to understand in the story of Genesis from the beginning till now, and it carries co- so all the way to the New Testament. After Adam and Eve sinned before God, God is the one that gave them animal skins. He made a sacrifice. Animals died to cover their shame for what they did wrong. God how we're not told how, but somehow Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve knew they were to bring a sacrifice to God. Abel's wasn't accepted, or Abel's was accepted. Cain's was not. Abel's was a blood sacrifice. Cain's was not. It was of vegetables and fruit and, and whatever of the ground. It wasn't just that Abel was insincere. His sacrifice was not a blood sacrifice. You see, there is a picture from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the Bible that your sins and my sins are never forgiven apart from the perfect blood sacrifice of Jesus, ultimately. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no sending away of that sin because life is in the blood. The Bible is very clear. Abel should have bartered, or Cain should have bartered with his brother Abel and brought a sacrifice that was a blood sacrifice because this was for atonement for their sins. Well, Sean, how can animals bring about salvation from sin? Because the animals aren't... No, those were a picture all along the way. And that's why when Moses comes and gives his law, there's two kinds of sacrifices that are given. There's the blood sacrifices, and then there's the offering of grain. If you think about it, we do the same thing today. We're supposed to bring our offerings to God, which is a proportion of our income, and we give it away to God. That's what those grain offerings were, the fruit of the ground offerings were. And that's a good thing to offer to God. But we also have a second offering that we don't bring ourselves, that Jesus brought on our behalf when he died on the cross for our sin, the blood sacrifice. And apart from that, we have no relationship with God. Apart from that, we have no forgiveness of sin. Because of that relationship we have with God, and that sacrifice, that offering that he made on our behalf, we then in turn give him of our produce, of the fruit of what our labors are that we work. For us, it's money. <laughs> it's electronic money for most of us these days. It's not even cash or a check. And that's the offering that we bring. You see, even though Noah was a righteous man, his blamelessness, the blamelessness was predicated, it was based On a blood sacrifice that he was trusting in not just the animals that he was sacrificing but that one day God would bring the perfect sacrifice would pay for his sin. So this morning I want to challenge you to be sober about your own heart with where you are with God. Many people look to God as this benevolent God kind of a you know a fatherly figure. There's time in church that's nice and benevolent. There was a time in church history where everybody saw God as this vengeful, wrathful, you know, I'm going to get you, God. And both pictures are actually true. God wiped out the whole planet except eight people. Drowned them. There's a lot of ways that I would prefer to die, and drowning is not one of them, folks. I just got to be honest with you. That is not a pleasant thought. But it was a judgment that they deserve. It's a judgment that you and I have all deserved. But God's a benevolent God through the blood sacrifice of his son Jesus. When we come to him on his terms and receive him as Lord of our life, then he's a gracious. We find favor in the eyes of God in every area of our life. And so this story this morning should be a thank you Lord for saving us, that you didn't just Kick the whole world to the curb and not give the opportunity for salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus. For many of us, it should cause a worship and a gratitude in our heart. We see a rainbow in the sky. The first thing in our mind shouldn't be, well, I don't like those people, what they use that rainbow for today. Our first thought should be, God, I don't care what the world thinks of it. You said that you're going to look at that rainbow and remember that it's your salvation. And that's the way we should look at the rainbow always. As think of it that, That's how God sees it, and that's the way we should see it. It should cause that in our heart. It should cause, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it should cause a little nervousness in your heart. That's something you need to take care of. Because the day is coming where just like this, God's going to say, that's it, enough. No more weddings. No more food. The dinner you have in the freezer, you're not going to get to prepare. Time's over. I'm hitting a hard reset button this time. As the Bible says, the next time the world will be removed, it will be completely by fire. And God will make a new heaven and a new earth from scratch. And the old will pass away. And only those who've surrendered their life to Jesus Christ will get to be a part. Only them, only those will be on that boat for salvation. So this morning, the story of Noah's Ark should be sobering, should be encouraging. It should encourage us to know that God is a paying attention to our whole life and is there watching out for us. He's also there and sees it when our heart's not with Him. And it should cause us to say, God, help me to walk with you. I want to be somebody that doesn't just trust you for salvation, I want to be somebody that's righteous and blameless in my generation that's walking with you. Young students in the room, you aspire to be that kind of person. You aspire to be, regardless of what's going on in the world around you and your friends what others think, that you want to honor God and do what's right with Him. That's what this story should say to you. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. Join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at River of Life Church or find us online on Facebook, YouTube, or at riveralbany.com.